Neil Gaiman, writer of such fantasy and horror novels as American Gods and The Graveyard Book, as well as the seminal comic book series The Sandman, once said that Novellas are an odd form of writing, and there is no love for them in publishing. They are the wrong size. Stephen King agrees, in his typical Stephen King way. Now, artistically speaking, there's nothing at all wrong with the novella. Of course, there's nothing wrong with circus freaks either, except that you rarely see them outside of the circus. King adds, When a writer approaches the 20,000-word mark, he knows he is edging out of the country of the short story. Likewise, when he passes the 40,000-word mark, he is edging into the country of the novel. This is a feeling Stephen knows all too well from his painful experience writing his first published novel, Carrie. Any Stephen King fan will note that Carrie is on the short side for a novel, especially for a writer whose books are notorious for being so gargantuan that one of them, The Stand, was so long in its original form that the publisher asked Stephen to trim it down for fear the unwieldy page count would break the book spine. But in the case of Carrie, Stephen was determined to get the damn thing published on its own, not to wind up in some infernal collection with other fish nor fowl novellas. So he stretched Carrie's word length by padding it out with epistolary interstitials, snippets from newspaper articles, excerpts from books, interviews with the characters, even some graffiti scratched on a desk. Carrie White eats shit. Nothing pads out a page length like poetic turns of phrase like that. And wouldn't you know it, he made it to that fabled country of the novel, that wondrous Shangri-La all fiction writers seek. Clocking in at just over 60,000 words, Stephen had a novel in Carrie. Just barely. And yet, throughout his decades-long career post-Carrie, Stephen would spend a lot of time with these circus freaks of the publishing world, publishing multiple novella collections, including Different Seasons in 1982 and Four Past Midnight in 1990. And on November 5th, 2010, he would publish perhaps his grimmest batch of novellas yet, Full Dark, No Stars. And he would kick off these four pitch black novellas with what is arguably the bleakest of the bunch, 1922. Welcome, constant listeners, to the Stephen Kingdom. For decades, his works of horror, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy have terrified and delighted audiences around the world. The exceptional Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. We begin with Stephen King. Stephen King. The first emotion in both humor and horror is this sort of childish delight. Hi, Georgie. I remember one thing. Fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. 1922 is the story of a Nebraska farmer at the end of his rope, driven so mad by his loathsome wife that he is given no choice but to murder her and toss her corpse down a well, where the rats can feed upon her day in and day out, night and day, until there is nothing left of her but rotten, rat-gnawed bones. The novella 1922 is firmly rooted in the grand tradition of stories wherein a character's evil deed leads to such overwhelming guilt and shame that it drives them to madness. Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, Toni Morrison's Beloved, H.P. Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, and the granddaddy of them all, Macbeth, by William Shakespeare himself. The story of 1922 takes the form of a confession letter written by our protagonist, 
Wilfred Leland James, at the Magnolia Hotel in Omaha, Nebraska, on the 11th of April, 1930. And what we get from the outset pretty much tells us all we need to know to get this nasty little tale off and running. To whom it may concern, my name is Wilfred Leland James, and this is my confession. In June of 1922, I murdered my wife, Arlette Christina Winters James, and hid her body by tupping it down an old well. My son, Henry Freeman James, aided me in this crime, although at 14, he was not responsible. I cozened him into it, playing upon his fears and beating down his quite normal objections over a period of two months. This is a thing I regret even more bitterly than the crime, for reasons this document will show. By starting the novella this way, Stephen King is immediately drawing us into Wilfred's side of things, his point of view. And King keeps this strict, limited first-person point of view throughout the novella, which maintains this form of Wilfred's confession letter. As such, all the events in 1922 are Wilfred's version of said events, which means there could be a whole other version of the story told from his son Henry's point of view, or heck, Arlette's before she gets done in by old Wilf. That'd make for a pretty short story indeed. When writers employ this kind of limited perspective, we as readers best keep our antenna up because the character, like all of us, is by their very nature unreliable. Think Humbert Humbert in Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, one of the most notoriously unreliable narrators in literary history. And when you have a character like this, like Wilfred Leland James in 1922, someone who commits such a heinous act and spends the rest of the story tangling and twisting himself up in lies and deceptions to cover it all up, well, best keep a character like this at arm's length. Critic Terence Rafferty of the New York Times opines, there's a particularly intimate sense of horror in 1922 because the sad story is told in the voice of one of the afflicted. Not much, I guess, truly scares Stephen King. But in this tale, his prose feels haunted, as if he had, for once, spooked himself. Even more problematic with Wilfred is that he makes us feel like we can trust him. The form of the story is a confessional, after all. Heck, the word confession is in the first line of the story. Wilfred lets us glimpse his darkest thoughts and schemes, but he's also candid about knowing full well the depths of his dark deeds. Except, Stephen King isn't content to make Wilfred an all-cards-on-the-table kind of guy. Sure, Wilfred wants us to think he's an open book. There's every indication that he truly believes what he's telling us is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. But he's got a big blind spot, and that blind spot is what Wilfred calls the conniving man. I believe that there is another man inside of every man. A stranger. A conniving man. And I believe that by March of 1922, when the Hemingford County skies were white and every field was a snow-scrimmed mudsuck, a conniving man inside Farmer Wilfred James had already passed judgment on my wife and decided her fate. It was justice of the black cat variety, too. The Bible says that an ungrateful child is like a serpent's tooth, but a nagging and ungrateful wife is ever so much sharper than that. 
I'm not a monster. I tried to save her from the conniving man. The conniving man. Save her from the conniving man. Here, Wilfred is having it both ways, kinda sorta taking responsibility for his dark deeds, but kinda sorta not. And I'd argue that with Wilfred's invention of the conniving man, he's admitting his guilt, even though he maybe doesn't know it. Because what does the word conniving connotate to you, a constant listener? Hmm? To me, to be conniving requires at the very least two qualities, patience and intelligence. And Wilfred has both those traits in spades. First, there's Wilfred's patience. After he murders Arlette and throws her body down the well, her lawyer shows up at the farm. Until Arlette is found, Wilfred says she's run off. <laughs> the lawyer warns Wilfred not to touch her share of the land, especially because that land could be mighty valuable if sold to the local slaughterhouse. What I wanted to say was, no, it's not mine. But it's not yours either. It's just gonna sit there. And that's all right because it will be mine in seven years when I go to court to have her declared legally dead. I can wait. Seven years without smelling pig shit when the wind's out of the west. Seven years without hearing the screams of dying hogs. So much like the screams of a dying woman. We're seeing their intestines float down a creek that's red with blood. Sounds like an excellent seven years to me. And then there's Wilfred's cows. Now, throughout the novella, Wilfred's manner of speech indicates he's a pretty educated man, especially for a rural Nebraskan farmer in the 1920s. He even boasts about being an avid reader to Arlette's lawyer. But it's Wilfred's cows and their names specifically that really show off his intelligence. I named all our cows after minor Greek goddesses. But Elphis turned out to be either a bad choice or an ironic joke. In case you don't remember the story of how evil came to our sad old world, let me refresh. All the bad things flew out when Pandora gave in to her curiosity and opened the jar that had been left in her keep. The only thing that remained when she regained enough wits to put the lid back on was Elphis, the goddess of hope. But in that summer, 1922, there was no hope left for our Elphis. Elphis meets a tragic end when she tumbles down the well and lands on top of Arlette's corpse. Elphis breaks her neck in the fall, writhing and kicking, one of her hooves cracking Arlette's jaw. Wilfred takes aim and pow, puts poor old Elphis out of her misery. And Elphis isn't the only craftily named cow. There's Feminoe, named after a Greek poet and inventor of the hexameter verse. Now that's a type of poetic meter considered to be the most grandiose of all poetic meters and is often nicknamed the heroic hexameter or the meter of the epic. Pretty fitting, I'd say, considering it's the style used in such epic poetry as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, and Ovid's Metamorphoses. Now, Feminoe was a daughter of Apollo and his first priestess at Delphi. You students of Greek mythology will recognize Delphi as the location of the Temple of Apollo, where the Oracle of Delphi resided. The infamous words, know thyself, were inscribed over the entrance to the Temple of Apollo. And as it turns out, know thyself is a saying sometimes attributed to, you guessed it, Feminoe, the daughter of Apollo, not Wilfred's cow. 
With one tossed off cow name, Stephen King gets a nice nod to the craft of writing, an opportunity he never passes up, and he ties the name of the goddess and cow to Wilfred himself. Know thyself. Wilfred thinks he knows himself, but does he really? Can he really? I'd argue no, not as long as he's so eager to pin his sins on the aforementioned conniving man. The third eponymously named cow that Stephen King runs through the ringer is Achelois, a lunar goddess whose name means she who drives away pain. And with a loaded name like this, the etymology of which Wilfred even points out to us, the readers, you just know this poor cow is going to meet a doomed end. And so she does. After Wilfred's life has fallen apart, she ends up living in the house with him before galloping off the porch and breaking both front legs. Wilfred muses. Not even a blameless cow could survive around me, it seemed. I went outside, patted Akalois on the head. She stretched her neck up and lowed plaintively, make it stop. You're the master, you're the god of my world, so make it stop. I did. Happy. Now with all these cows running through 1922, it's a wonder King has any room left for any other beasts, great or small. But then again, he's always got space for his number one go-to gross-out critter. Rats. I wonder who that could be. Well, hello there, little fella. Who might you be? Oi there, Crisp Rat here. Crispy Rat, welcome to the Stephen Kingdom. Your name, Crispy Rat? Uh, bit macabre, don't you think? It's pronounced Crisp Rat. My mother was a big fan of that actor's work. May she rest in peace. So what brings you here, Mr. Rat? On behalf of all Ratum, I come as an ambassador to ensure that all rat-centric information on your Stephen King show is portrayed accurately and responsibly. Our image has been tarnished over the years by your human media. We rats consider Stephen King to be an unfortunate nuisance, always casting us as nasty, loathsome creatures. Why rats? Because rats are nasty. Rats are scary. We rats crop up in countless Mr. King works. Heck, in one of his later novella collections, If It Bleeds, there's a novella titled Simply Rat, about a rat that offers to get rid of a writer's writer's block in exchange for the life of one of the writer's loved ones. We rats feature most prominently in Mr. King's short story Graveyard Shift, first published in the October 1970 issue of Cavalier Magazine and later included in his first collection of short stories, Night Shift. In Graveyard Shift, some fellows are cleaning out an abandoned textile mill that's so deep underground and so far removed from mankind that an empire of rats has risen. And it's not just regular old rats. It's the Gremlins too of rats. A rat of every size and shape. Albino rats and armored rats and flying bat rats. And oh! There's also a big, honking, eyeless, legless queen rat who does nothing but breed all these kooky-ass rats. <laughs> you know, Stephen King got $200 for that story. He was overpaid. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me while I brush this very big chip off your tiny little shoulder. In the novella 1922, though, it's just regular old rats. 
They start out at the bottom of the well, feeding on the rotting corpse of Wilfred's wife. But soon, like Wilfred's ever-encroaching guilt, psst, the rats are metaphors. The rats get closer and closer, closing in on Wilfred, driving him further into a deepening chasm of madness. One night in August, Wilfred awakes to a pained moaning in his barn only to find Achelous the cow with a big, fat rat clinging to her udders with its sharp teeth. The weight has stretched the pink stub to a top length of cartilage. Frozen in surprise and horror, I thought of how, as a child, Henry would sometimes pull a string of pink bubble gum out of his mouth. Okay, okay, Mr. King, we get the picture. You don't like rats. No need to belabor this awful scene by describing it in further detail. I write about things that scare me the most. And I think when people ask me, well, what scares you? They expect some sort of big existential answer like death or the idea that there's no afterlife or possibly that there is an afterlife. But really, the things that scare me are the things that scare most people, I think. Stephen King likes to scare people. For better or worse, we rats scare people. Ego, Stephen King writes about rats. Pretty straightforward. One of my favorite scenes in 1922 is uh, where Will reaches up under the top shelf of the closet to get his wife's hat box, and there's a big rat crouched on top of it. It bites him, and I just thought, ugh, it's off. It's gotta go. In Mr. King's favorite scene of 1922, a naked as a jaybird Wilfred gets bit by a rat barefooted, mind you, stomps the rat to death. Take it away, Wilf. I didn't even remember that I was as naked as the day I was born, just brought my right foot down on the rat. I heard its bones crunch and felt its guts squash. Blood and liquefied intestines squirted from beneath its tail and doused my left ankle with warmth. It tried to twist around and bite me again. I could see its large front teeth gnashing, but it couldn't quite reach me. Not that was as long as I kept my foot on it. So I did. I pushed harder, holding my wounded hand against my chest, feeling the warm blood mat the thick pelt that grew there. The rat twisted and flopped. Its tail first lashed my calf, then wrapped around it like a grass snake. Blood gushed from its mouth. Its black eyes bulged like marbles. I stood there with my foot on the dying rat for a long time. It was smashed to pieces inside, its innards reduced to gruel, and still it thrashed and tried to bite. Finally, it stopped moving. I feel so dead inside. Well, there you have it. To paraphrase a Mr. Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about rats. Well, thanks for stopping by, Mr. Rat. The name's Chris. Chris Peratt. Long days and pleasant nights, my rodent friend. Back ratchet. Oi there, constant listeners. Chris P. Rat here. Did you know The Stephen Kingdom is also a YouTube show? It's a show that viewers have called impressive, informative, fantastic, astounding, and manic and energetic, but in a good way. And best of all, it's free, just like this podcast. But making a podcast in the YouTube series isn't free. It costs a lot of cheddar. 
Cheddar. To keep the Stephen Kingdom up and running. Hence, a Patreon. Supporters of the Stephen Kingdom Patreon get all sorts of exclusive content, including deleted and extended material, early access to episodes, and your name in the credits. Speaking of which, our sincerest thank you to the patrons who have helped make the Stephen Kingdom possible. By now, you may be thinking to yourself, are David and his little rodent pounds just going to read me the whole novella, or are we actually going to move on to what really matters here? The movie adaptation. As it just so happens, three of the four novellas in Full Dark No Stars were adapted into movies, and 1922 is one of them. It took the trifecta of Stephen King veteran actor Thomas Jane, Australian writer and director Zach Hilditch, and some of that sweet, sweet Netflix money to look at a novella written as a first-person confessional, wherein readers are privy to the innermost, deepest, darkest thoughts and feelings of a disturbed, manipulative individual and say, hey, let's make that into a movie. So make a movie they did, and a pretty faithful one at that, I might add. I had a chance to pick the brain of 1922's writer and director Zach Hilditch about his experience adapting Stephen King's mean-spirited novella. Zach Hilditch, welcome to the Stephen Kingdom. We might as well start at the beginning. What is your first experience with Stephen King? I think I was probably about uh, 11 when it the miniseries came out. And of course, that was the end of that. It just blew my mind. It terrified me and my friends. I then started reading it and as not a book reader at all at that age, like because it was King, it was like, holy shit, I'm gonna read this very dense book. And uh, I can't remember how much of it actually seeped in, but I did my best. But yeah, that was my real uh, King origin tale. Which brings us to your adaptation of 1922, the first novella in the Full Dark No Stars collection. How did you first come across the novella? I just stumbled across the cover with the woman who's all contorted and the red Stephen King and just the title, Full Dark No Stars. I was like, that is such a good title. It's such a bleak title. And I opened it up and I was like, all right, I haven't read a King for a while. And first story was 1922 and I read it and I was like, yeah, Frank Darabont is going to have a field day with this story one day because it just felt like the next Frank Darabont movie. And I never in a million years thought that I'd be coming back to that story and also being granted the keys to the kingdom to make it, you know? As writer and director of the film adaptation of 1922, you also wrote the screenplay, which means you were adapting Stephen King's writing for the screen. What was this process like? Were you nervous? Were you thinking, oh, Stephen's not gonna like what I'm doing, the changes I'm making to his story? Yeah, I think you'd be lying if you said that wasn't there, but you kind of have to just move beyond that or else you're gonna be crippled <laughs> with fear and you'll never be able to move your fingers on the on the keyboard. And, and he's just so great, because once he gives you the keys, he really does give you the keys. It's not like he had a bunch of notes and he's like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> maybe we should co-write it together. It was just like, he gave it his blessing and it was like, wow, like he's actually approved this. That was a great day. And then um, I was like, well, here we go, baby. Let's let's get this thing. Let's go, Hollywood. I would consider your adaptation of 1922 to be one of the top ones, possibly because it is so faithful to Stephen King's novella. But how did you approach adapting his story? How did you make decisions about what to leave behind in the novella, what you absolutely had to carry over into the movie, things you had to rearrange or alter for cinematic purposes? What was informing all of these decisions? 
It was a really fun thing to adapt because it was so cinematic anyway. That's why I wanted to make it. It was already a movie in my mind. I just had to move things over here and move things over there. But he gave me such a great gift there because I was going to be able to use narration. I was going to really make it quite poetic in places. Like he could, that was all him. <laughs> it was definitely when he invented this world. Then I just like sort of did my interpretation of it where I wanted to be faithful. But also there were, there were moments there where I also had to like completely change things in order to make it a film, which is just what happens when you go from yeah, one medium to the other. What were things from the novella that you knew you absolutely had to put in the movie? And what were things that maybe you felt needed to be changed for cinematic purposes? A lot of time went into the setup of like Wilfred, his son, the son's girlfriend, and just all of that rich world and the decaying nature of of the marriage. But yeah, if you do go back and reread it, it actually does have quite a different sort of flow and shape, but we just had to be very streamlined. Because you never really even get like, oh, this is a great relationship. We, we meet this marriage where it's like already on the way out. It's not great. And then it only gets less great <laughs> as that first act goes on. And then even just like, obviously the well, it's just so bad to what happens down in that well once they do put her body down in there with the horse kicking her in the face, rats, and all of this stuff. We had to be, again, very succinct in like, what are we able to achieve? But give it the same feeling of creepiness of what's going on down at the well. And for me, one of the non-negotiables was we absolutely need a rat coming out of her mouth. It's the visual embodiment of almost the entire movie. Rats are everywhere in 1922, both in the novella and in your movie. And so I'm wondering, were you using real rats all the time or were you using cinematic tricks, puppets and CGI to kind of fill out the world and make these rats a pervasive presence in the story? Yeah, it was a rat fest. We had this amazing animal wranglers in Vancouver. They're like, how many rats do you need? Okay, well, we'll, we'll get going. They bred them. They then started training them. What you see is like, all real rats, because again, we weren't going to be able to like do <laughs> fake animated rats on, on our budget. It wasn't ever going to look great. But then obviously like the one that he stomps on, not a real rat, <laughs> but uh, that was like a, a live grenade almost just full of blood and guts that he has to stomp on. But yeah, like what you see is like, that's a real rat coming out of a fake bottom half of Molly Parker's mouth, but really coming out of a mouth and the tail. Like You were never going to get all that stuff if you were trying to do too much trickery. It's like they, they had to be real proper sized rats. And yeah, there was a lot of them. Which brings us to Thomas Jane. Now, anybody familiar with Stephen King movies, they've seen him pop up in Frank Darabont's The Mist and Lawrence Kasdan's Dreamcatcher. Your movie, 1922, is his third Stephen King adaptation. And what was it like working with him and how did you go about casting him? Just really through happenstance. I never really had anyone particularly in mind. And um, so I was at my producer's office one day and he was like, what do you think about Thomas Jane? And I was like, ah, oh. and he goes, yeah, I've just spoken to his agent. So next day I had, I'm sitting across from him having lunch and I'm just like completely blown away by this guy to the point where that lunch ended and I was just like, well, that's Wilfred, you know? And it wasn't necessarily because it was his third King thing. It was just, he obviously loves King's writing, but um, he just got that character and he wanted to really play and explore that role. And he wanted to lose himself in it. And that's exactly what he did. Like what you see on screen is just, the electricity coming out of his paws. And you look back and it's like, who else would have even been able to pull this off? Like get lying in a bottle like that with Thomas in this role. He is Wilfred James, you know, like he absolutely destroyed that role. Well, Zach Hilditch, thanks for joining us here on The Stephen Kingdom. Totally.
Stephen King is always upfront about the origins of his ideas when he can remember them. And in the case of 1922, the story came to him from one book in particular. The original inspiration for the story was Wisconsin Death Trip. And I kept those pictures in mind. And I had done previous research and had made some previous trips through Nebraska. I love it out there in the big empty. So I got some background to start with. And I have a tendency to just uh, then kind of wing it in terms of imagination. Wisconsin Death Trip. It's a nonfiction book published in 1973 by Michael Lisi that writer Neil Gaiman notes, must have inspired as many books as it has sold. Wisconsin Death Trip is a compilation of 19th century photographs and news reports, most of which center around the harsh rural life of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. By juxtaposing these news report excerpts with the stunning photographs of Charles Van Shake, Michael Lisi aims to give us a glimpse into the past that is as much an exercise of history as it is an experiment in alchemy. He wants us to experience the book and the accounts within its pages as a sort of flexible mirror that connects us with the past. His hope then is that we bring ourselves to the book each time we let the stories and images of the past wash over us. Now that may sound a little highfalutin, sure, but is there really any other way to experience a text, I ask you? A text is, after all, unchanging, while it is we, the readers, who change. So what was it about this particular text, Wisconsin Death Trip, that had such a profound effect on Stephen King that he was compelled to use it as a foundational text for 1922? I have tried my best in full dark, no stars, to record what people might do and how they might behave under certain dire circumstances. In many ways, the novella 1922 is an odd man out in both Full Dark, No Stars as a novella collection and in Stephen King's bibliography as a whole. Stephen's generally not keen on writing period pieces. In fact, 1922 is the only novella in Full Dark, No Stars that isn't set in the present day, circa 2010, when it was published. It's also not set in his usual go-to main setting, but rather Nebraska, the Big Empty, as Stephen calls it. 1922 is also the only novella in Full Darkness Stars told in the first person. And while this certainly isn't Stephen's first rodeo with writing from the first person point of view, the style and the voice is notably different. As if King were conjuring the ghosts of John Steinbeck, Flannery O'Connor, and Cormac McCarthy. Here's New York Times critic Terence Rafferty once again. The change of air and voice suits him. 1922 has a mournful gravity that the other tales mostly lack. And here's Neil Gaiman once again in his review of Full Dark No Stars for The Guardian. King tells it in a precise manner that's far from his usual voice. King tells 1922, as Los Angeles Times critic David L. Ulan notes, using a depression-era vernacular that is oddly formal, dusty even, although the story it tells is hot. While 1922 seems to stick out like a sore thumb in a collection of otherwise modern-day set novellas, its thematic concerns are very, very much in line with the other three stories. Aforementioned LA Times critic David L. Ulan observes that Full Dark New Stars is bleak, with an Old Testament-like sense of affliction and retribution, an assurance that every sin must be repaid. By Stephen's own admission in the afterword, the stories in this book are harsh. Indeed, three of the four stories, including 1922, center around violence against women. 
1922 has Wilfred murdering his wife. Big Driver is about a rape victim seeking revenge on her rapist, and A Good Marriage involves a wife who discovers that her husband is a serial killer of women. Stephen acknowledges, You may have found them hard to read in places. If so, be assured that I found them equally hard to write in places. Hard to read? Yes. Even harder to put down? Yes. Neil Gaiman says 1922 is simply as good as anything Stephen King has done. With 1922, King gives us a compelling tale told by an equally compelling character. And Wilfred is all the more compelling because he's wrestling with something we've all felt, guilt. Now, granted, that's a guilt born of murdering his wife, which I'm hoping none of you are familiar with, but whether it's a guilt born of murder or a guilt born of uh, cheating on your taxes, we can all relate with that feeling of being so consumed with guilt that it haunts your dreams, keeps you up at night. King says, I have tried my best in full dark no stars to record what people might do and how they might behave under certain dire circumstances. Well, no circumstance more dire than murdering your wife and getting away with it only to be driven mad and ultimately consumed by your guilt. Literally consumed by rats. Boy back. You called? Oh, hey there, crispy rat. I was just wrapping up the episode. Uh, hey, while you're here, you want to bring us home? Rats-o-lutely! On our next Full Dark No Stars episode, we'll take a look at another tale of a woman getting even with a man who wronged her. And this time, she won't have to reach beyond the grave to get her revenge. Full Dark No Stars Part 2 Big Driver the Stephen Kingdom is hosted and written by me, David McCracken, and is produced and mixed by Josh Reedford. Original music by Aaron Reedford. A special thanks to our guests, Zach Hilditch and Chris P. Ratt, as well as our voice actors, Aiden Bell as Neil Gaiman, Jack Scott as Terrence Rafferty, Josh Reedford as David L. Ulan, and Aaron Reedford as Michael Lisi. Long days and pleasant nights, constant listeners. 